Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, I'm going to tell you a story. Hey friends, Michael Kingswood coming back at you again with story time. Been a, let's see, it's been a, a very busy week around the Kingswood abode here doing lots of, lots and lots of business and family stuff. And, uh, so we're taking it easy this weekend a little bit. It's uh, recording this uh, Sunday about lunchtime, and uh, I just figured I'd say hi and keep it brief. Go straight into the chapters for the day. Continuing on with chapters 19 and 20 of Glimmervale, first book of Glimmervale Chronicles, which we've been going through the last few weeks. And when last we left off the story, uh, Radric and Salam. We're skulking through the weird chasm that turned into someplace else that the they think the brigands are hanging out in, and uh, using that as their base camp. Apparently, we'll see. Uh, we'll continue on and see what they uh, find there. I'll talk to you on the flip side. Chapter nineteen, base camp. It was difficult to determine how long Radric and Salam followed the path through the gloom. Without the moon overhead, Radric had only his internal clock to figure the passage of time, and he knew well how imprecise that can be. Also, very soon after setting out, the cliffs again vanished from sight. Without a reference point, it soon became impossible to judge distance either. It was almost as if time had stopped and distance had lost its meaning. Even though he knew it to be an illusion, Radric still found that notion extremely uncomfortable to consider. So he was relieved when, out of the gloom ahead, shapes appeared. Two columns flanking an open doorway were set into a rock wall. At first, Radric thought the wall was just another part of the cliffs, but it was too smooth and not nearly as tall. The gloomy mist swirled the same distance above this wall as it had the cliffs, however. Very strange. Biting back a yawn, it was well past midnight, Radric drew his saber and ran toward the column to the right of the doorway. The whole setup made the hair on the back of his neck stand up. It wasn't just the oddness of the place. Where were the sentries? He half expected arrows to begin raining down from atop the wall, but none came. He reached the column and pressed flat against it. On the other side of the doorway, Salam had done the same. It was good that he hadn't needed to be ordered to do so. Radric was becoming more and more impressed with him as time went on. And with his sword. This was the first time Radric had seen it unsheathed, and he found himself doing a double-take. The blade was standard length, but curved almost as much as Radric's saber. Its edge was sharpened on the convex side of the curve, and on the last half foot of the concave side just below the point. Nothing unusual there except that it was obviously high-quality workmanship. It was the flat of the blade that drew Radric's attention. Stylized symbols and designs were etched into the metal down the entire length of the blade. Game animals, fantastic creatures, stars, the moon in its various phases, and all manner of strange letters and symbols that Radric did not recognize. Done poorly, such a collection of inscriptions would have been cluttered, awkward. Not so in this case. 
Every similar picture flowed seamlessly into the next so that the whole became a beautiful work of art that captured the eye and would not let go. Salam noticed Raedric's study and moved the blade so he could more readily examine it. If Emily heirloom, he said in a whisper that just reached Raedric's ears. It has been passed down from father to son for many generations. I can see why. Salam's teeth flashed in the gloom as he grinned. Back to business. Raedric slid around the column until he could just peek through the doorway. Again, Salam followed his lead without needing to be told. There was not much to see at first glance. The path turned to the left beyond the doorway and sloped upward along the outside of another wall. Raedric presumed it reached another level area above somewhere, but that was obscured by the gloom. For a moment, he wondered if it was more cheerful here in the daylight. Given the lack of moonlight, he would wager no. Talk about a depressing place to lair if that were the case. I imagine we'll come up on some sign of them before much longer, Salam offered. Sentries, horse pickets, something. You'd think. Keep alert. Radric noted Salam's expression from the corner of his eye as he slipped through the doorway, the annoyed look of a man who has just been told the obvious. The trail started out ascending at a shallow angle, but before long the grade increased and the climb became more difficult. Radric imagined it would be even more difficult on horseback. Maybe they made a practice of walking their horses from this point. The slope made for a good way to slow an assault regardless. After an indeterminable climb, shapes began to emerge from the gloom ahead and above. Squared off like blocks, it was hard to make out what they were for a long moment. Then he and Salam ascended a few more feet, and the structures came clearly into view. It was a gatehouse, complete with crenellated walls, a portcullis, and a thick wooden gate. And a pair of guards with torches on the battlements on either side of the gate. Cover! Radric pressed against the wall and slowly edged his way backward down the trail until the torches and battlements were only just visible. That will be difficult to breach, Salam observed. At least from this approach. Radric nodded. But are there any other approaches? I wouldn't want to try to find a different way through this place to find it, would you? Not in this life. Radric hesitated. This was, without doubt, Eisenhalf's lair. But they only knew marginally more than they had before coming. He was loath to leave without getting more information. Perhaps they could scale the wall. But no, it was sheer and smooth, with hardly a seam between the stones it was built from. It was useless. They had learned all they could this night. It's time to go, he said with a sigh. Salam nodded and began moving down the trail. With one last look up at the gatehouse, Radric followed. They made better time going out than coming in, partly because they knew the way already, but mostly because of relief. Radric was not about to admit it to Salam, but the thought of leaving the oppressive gloom of this place, wherever or whatever it was, lent extra speed to his stride. Before long, they stood before the chasm opening in the side of the cliffs. Beside him, Radric heard Salam breathe a sigh. Not a moment too soon. This place makes me nervous. Smirking at his own cowardice and not admitting similar feeling more than anything else, Radric replied, I know what you mean. Let's get out of... The sound of metal striking stone echoed down the chasm toward their ears, causing Radric to stop talking mid-thought. He froze, sudden anxiety flooding through him. Then, far down the chasm, a glow appeared. Flickering and bouncing, the glow could only be from a torch that someone was carrying. Son of a bitch, he breathed. He and Salam exchanged glances, and Radric was again impressed by the other man's calm. They exchanged nods, then darted to the cliff face beside the chasm mouth. Just as they had at the columns, Radric took the right, and Salam the left, blades drawn. There, they waited. Slowly, more noises began to emanate from the chasm. Footsteps, metallic clinking, and voices. 
It was hard to make out the words at first, but before long, the conversation became more clear. Good take! Yeah, Farzel was right again. Didn't even try to put up a fight. A short pause followed, then the conversation continued. Ain't it supposed to be brightening up in here? Sun came up a while ago. A loud snort followed, along with mocking laughter. Things don't line up in here, you know that. Whatever, it's unnatural, I tell ya. A general murmur of agreement followed. Radric glanced across the mouth of the chasm toward Salam and held up four fingers. The other man nodded agreement. There were four distinct voices in the conversation. If they got the drop on the brigands, it should be an easy fight. If. Though maybe a minute passed, it felt like an eternity, waiting there. His heart rate increasing rapidly from tension, Radric took a deep breath, then another. He forced himself, in spite of becoming more and more keyed up, to breathe slowly and deliberately. He had found over the years doing that helped him to focus. It did not do anything for his nerves, though. Just when Radric thought they were never going to show up, a pair of brigands stepped out of the chasm mouth, walking side by side. They were armed and armored the same as the others Radric had seen so far, though they looked weary, with bags under their eyes. I probably look even worse, Radric thought with an inward smile. The two brigands looked neither left nor right, but continued straight ahead on the trail. Radric met Salam's eyes and nodded. The two men sprang into action as soon as the next pair of brigands stepped from the chasm. Radric darted in with a backhanded rising cut from his saber at the same time Salam attacked his foe. The brigands both wore nearly identical expressions of shock as they fell, blood spurting from their throats. The first two brigands had just begun to turn around when Radric and Salam spun and advanced on them. Salam's man managed to duck beneath his cut and roll to the side away from him. Radric's man also had quick reflexes. He turned all the way around and had his sword half-drawn when Radric's cut reached him. Only luck saved his life. Radric's saber struck his sword on its blade just above the hilt, sending the brigand staggering backwards but leaving him otherwise unharmed. Shrugging off the sounds of fighting to his right, Radric advanced, fainting low and then cutting high in an attempt to end the fight quickly. Fainting low and then cutting high in an attempt to end the fight quickly. But his foe was skilled and recovered his equilibrium faster than Radric expected, leaping backward to avoid the true attack as he finished drawing his blade. Then he countered, a straight thrust that should have run Radric through his midsection. Except that Radric was not there. He lunged far to the left, lowering his weight fully onto his left foot as the thrust passed harmlessly through the air where his torso used to be. Then he followed up with another backhanded cut. The brigand screamed as Radric's saber cut through the tendons in the back of his right knee, and he fell to the ground. Desperate fear and agony contorted the brigand's face as Radric moved forward, and the brigand made an awkward attack to ward him off. But Radric simply stepped within his swing radius and grabbed his sword arm by the wrist. Please, no! The brigand begged. Then Radric's saber tip entered the hollow where his jaw met his neck. The brigand spasmed once and went limp. Radric turned around to assist, but found Salam's foe already dead and the fishing man standing there calmly with his arms folded across his chest. Why do you toy with him? Salam asked. Taken aback, Radric was not sure how to respond at first. Bending over to wipe the blood off his saber using the brigand's cloak, he looked askance at Salam. What do you mean? You let him counter twice. You are skilled enough he should not have been able to counter at all. So, why do you toy with him? Radric had no answer. Chapter 20 Rifts Melanie whistled softly and leaned back in her chair. Julian had never seen her so impressed. He and Radric sat in the couch across the coffee table from her. Radric had just finished telling the tale of his exploits the night before last. 
Her eyes had grown wider and wider the more he spoke. I've heard of this sort of thing. Oh? Radric replied. Melanie nodded. Tymon told me about it. It's called... Tymon. Melanie looked at Radric with the sort of expression Julian had seen teachers use with particularly dense students. Remember the hypothetical mage I told you about? He nodded. If that had really happened, Tymon would be the mage in question. Ah. Melanie rolled her eyes and shook her head quickly. As I was saying, Tymon told me about it. It's called a transplanar rift. It allows passage from our world to one of the higher planes of reality. Higher planes of what? What the hell was she talking about? Looking over at him, Julian could see that Radric was just as confused as he was. That helped. A bit. Melanie must have seen the confusion on their faces because she looked at the ceiling inside, then stood up. A small writing desk stood over by the window. She retrieved a pen and inkwell along with a piece of paper from the desk and returned to the coffee table. Look, the material world we live in is not the sum total of existence. She looked down her nose at the two of them, adding, You should have learned this from your school teachers, or at least from your priests at some point. Radric nodded. Julian spread his hands and shrugged. Yeah, the priests always used to talk about how the gods live in the higher realms, or some such drivel. It didn't mean much to me. To his surprise, Melanie smiled. Or to me either, to be honest. When Tymon explained this to me, I thought he was putting me on at first. But it turns out to be true. With a little shrug, Melanie looked down at the paper and drew a line on it. Let's say this is our material world. The world is not two-dimensional. Radric pointed out. Melanie gave him a long-suffering look, making Radric shut his mouth and slouch back in the couch, looking chastened. Julian found himself grinning. She could be a handful, but he found himself admiring her more and more. If we assume our three-dimensional world can be represented by this line, Melanie said in an annoyed tone, which Radric responded to with a nod, we can also represent the other planes of existence with lines. She drew several more lines on the paper, some above the world line and some below. All have their own rules. Some are very similar to ours and can be visited. Some are different enough that to enter them means instant death. A few of them are so dangerous that even opening a portal to them could destroy wide swaths of the material world. How do we know that? Melanie looked at Julian and shrugged. Trial and error. From what I hear, members of the Magisterium have experimented with accessing the different planes for years— centuries, maybe, and they aren't the only ones. Her eyebrows rose high on her forehead. Do you remember the tale of Cyril Eremot? Julian nodded, who hadn't heard that story. How the ancient kingdom had come to a sudden end, destroyed by the gods in a fit of rage. How the kingdom's entire existence had been wiped away, leaving only a deep crater that was filled by the inrushing water from the world's oceans. Wait... Are you saying the Cyril Aramot was destroyed because someone there accessed one of these... places? Melanie nodded. Julian felt a chill go down his spine. A transplanar rift is a junction between our material world... Melanie placed the pen on the material line and drew a second line connecting it with one of the other lines on the paper. And one of the other planes. If the plane in question is habitable, people can go visit. It's tricky, but it can be done. Even more tricky... It is possible to establish a permanent connection to part of a nearby plane and then create a bubble, if you will, of the material world within it. I'll wager that is what you and Salam encountered, Radric. It would explain why time was different there, as well as the strange perception you experienced. 
How? Radric stopped and swallowed. He looked as confused, as disturbed, as Julian felt. How is that sort of thing accomplished? Melanie shrugged. I've never seen or heard the incantations for it. If Tymon knew them, he did not share. He did say that only the most powerful mages wielding the rarest of compounds could create a transplanar rift. Bugger me, Julian said. That means Farzel. Eisenhoff, Radric corrected. Whatever. That means he has a big-time mage on his side. And we're supposed to fight that how? Melanie looked askance at him. No offense, Melanie, I'm sure you're totally capable, but you just said you don't... I know what I said. You did not listen. Sure I did. Only the most powerful mages can do this sort of thing. True, but you did not stop to consider the implications of that fact. When I say only the most powerful can do it, I mean less than a dozen men in the entire world. So? So, everyone knows who those men are, and where they are. These are not the sorts of people who tend to associate with criminals, or to go somewhere without people knowing about it. Radric interjected. All right, so if it wasn't one of these famous mages, who could have made this place? Could be it's been there for a long time and we just didn't know about it, Julian offered. There are a lot of old ruins everywhere. Melanie considered his words for a moment, then shook her head. It's possible it was there before, but these aren't the sorts of things you can just walk into by mistake. Sometimes they are tied to an object of some kind, a focus for the magical energy. He would have to have obtained the precisely correct object linked to that particular rift, and then known the correct procedure to activate it in order to access the rift. Radric frowned. That leaves us with the fact that he has help from a mage. Melanie nodded. Hang on a second. You just said... I said he wouldn't have help from one of those particular mages, Julian. If the rift was activated through an object, a large number of lesser mages could make it work. Could you? She did not answer immediately. Looking down at her sketches of the planes, she picked up her teacup and sipped it, a thoughtful and troubled expression on her face. Finally, she looked up at them. I'm not sure. If I found the exact procedures associated with the object, maybe... Julian and Radric exchanged troubled looks. This just got better and better. That means Eisenhoff's mage is probably more skilled than you are, Radric said. It was not a question. Melanie nodded. Looks like you're definitely going to need my help again. Told you so, Julian said with a broad grin. That earned him an annoyed look that turned, after a moment, into a small smile and a nod from her. Radric looked between the two of them, a thoughtful expression on his face. Well, we have one advantage. Eisenhoff probably doesn't know we found his lair. How's that? Melanie asked. You killed four of his men. Radric nodded. True, but Salam and I drugged the bodies a few hundred yards into the mist, away from the trail to the fort, and cleaned up or covered as much of the blood as we could. So it's possible they just think those fellows deserted. You hope. He nodded again. Yes, I hope. Another advantage, Julian said. With your adventure, that puts him down nine men. If he started out with forty... Thirty-five, Melanie corrected. He probably did not send all his men to the raid on your caravan, Radric explained. He probably has at least forty men at that point. Melanie frowned but nodded. Then her eyes opened wide. He's taken twenty percent casualties in less than a week. That's got to have some of his men thinking about whether they want to keep doing this. Exactly. If we can whittle away at him a bit more, maybe we can force his hand, get him to do something foolish. A sudden thought occurred to Julian. Melanie, 
What would happen if the object controlling the rift were destroyed? She pursed her lips in thought for a moment. Most likely the rift would close forever, although I suppose there's a chance of something more dramatic happening. So, best case, whoever was in the rift at that point would be trapped. Is there any way they could come back? Melanie shook her head. No, there are an infinite number of planes in existence. Even if a highly skilled mage consented to recreate the rift, to target the exact place on the exact plane where they were located without a guide of some kind would be all but impossible. Well, that's it! Julian bounded to his feet, unable to contain his excitement. We don't need to worry about fighting all of them. We just need to find that object and... He made a gesture like he was breaking a stick in two. Radric's eyes widened. You might be onto something there. No. Melanie's emphatic statement took the wind out of Julian's sails. He looked back at her in confusion. Why not? Any object chosen to be imbued with this sort of power would have to be extremely durable, for the reason you just stated. I doubt you could just simply break it. But even if you could, where is it? I don't know. That's why we need to find it. Radric sighed ruefully. No, Julian, she's right. They've probably got it hidden in their fort. Or Eisenhoff keeps it on him. Or the mage does. Either way, we'd still end up having to fight our way through his men to get it. Julian nodded reluctantly. He hated that they were right, but he couldn't deny it. It would come down to a pitched battle after all. Wait a minute. Melanie, why can't you just, you know... He waved his hand around in a way that he hoped looked mystical. Bring the chasm down and block the rift that way. Radric rolled his eyes. Really, Julian? She's not a god. Didn't say she was, Ray, but mages can do some impressive things. Melanie replied, Julian, while that is theoretically possible, it's not practical. How come? Well, for one thing, like I told you before, the incantations for a spell that would actually move the earth would take a couple of hours, and the components would likely cost more than this town. Julian blinked, his initial enthusiasm blunted by her response. It got worse as Melanie continued. But more important than any of that, I don't know any spell that could do that. Rubbish! We saw mages in the army do things like that. Melanie nodded. I didn't say the spell doesn't exist. I said I don't know it. Julian sighed. Well, maybe we could roll a bunch of rocks down manually. You know, get a bunch of men from the town to- Julian. Radric was eyeing him in his patented, stop being stupid manner. And he was right. There was no way they could get enough stones moved in to block up the chasm without the brigands noticing it somehow. Then they would just have a fight on their hands, and they were not ready to face all of Eisenhoff's brigands yet. So be it. Julian sighed again. All right, let's figure out how to whittle him down some more then. Okay, got some pretty good uh, intel coming out of that one, it seems like. Um, I kind of liked these little discussions between the boys and uh, Melanie. I threw, as you noticed, I threw several of them into the book just because uh, I just like the interplay of the characters as I was writing it. It's like, these guys are fun to talk to each other. So as you continue on through the uh, Glimmervale's Chronicles, which I'm sure you will, uh, there will be many scenes where these guys just sort of sit around a table and hash things out. And uh, I guess I kind of use Melanie a little bit as the the sage who gives out uh, knowledge that they didn't have sometimes. And, you know, that's reasonable since she's a very learned person. 
and uh, as we'll find out in future books, she maintains contacts with other learned people and are able to get her hands on research materials and things like that. But um, <clears throat> maybe it's a little propish at times. Eh, I don't know. But I do like the interplay between them. I think they're a cool trio. So I keep doing it. So get used to it if you stick around on this one. Um, which you will, right? Anyway, so, yeah, 20% casualties in a week. Uh, the brigands must have had a much larger force than Julian and Rajik are assuming are actually not in super awesome state right now, which uh, yeah, I haven't really thought about it for sure But up to this point. But, yeah, look at that. 9 out of 40 gone. If I were one of Eisenhoff's guys, I'd be scratching my head and either I'd be mad about my compadres and want to get revenge, but I'd also start to be thinking a little harder about um, is this course of action really a good one? Maybe some other more profitable things we can do. Eh, maybe it'll help do any way out, or maybe it won't. To find out, you'll have to keep reading and listening to the story, which uh, will continue next week here on the podcast. You can get ahead of it by going and buying the book. You can find it uh, anywhere ebooks and print books and audiobooks are sold. Uh, of course, the best place by far to get it is my website because as opposed to anywhere from uh, 65 to 70% for the ebook or in the audiobook is even worse, get someone to like 25 to 30% um, royalties there. And that's of the net that the various stores sell it at. Or my website, I get about 90 to 95%. Clearly better for me that way. And better for you because you can feel good about supporting your favorite silly little guy on on YouTube and BitChute and Podcast Land. And yeah, so. But whether or not you choose to buy the book, uh, please do come back next week. We'll continue on. Tell your friends and neighbors about it. Like, subscribe, pass the word around, all that good stuff. And I'll talk to you next week. Until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com, where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual e-tailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mail list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music, copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved. <laughs>